Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller. I'm Susie Younger. An African-American licensed psychotherapist. I'm also a licensed therapist. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias. Anything that marginalizes and oppresses. As a white woman, I ask the questions white people are too afraid to ask. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, Susie and I will have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? Attention, white women. White women unite. Pam Ditto declares all of this, not because we are smarter, but because we use that historical narrative to not stand up for justice, injustice, and racism. Pam Ditto says that the road to success is not the one paved by a white man. She stands up to patriarchy, white people, white women. She's sick and tired of white is right, and white women in particular who cannot tolerate the discomfort of change. She is honest, real, and uses her voice to share not only her experience, from everything from her dental procedures to her adoption to her feelings on interracial adoption. She says, don't even get me started. Oh, we can't wait to get her started. Welcome, <laughs> Pam Ditto. <laughs> I rather like that. I feel very special. Susie, Susie, Susie is something with her introductions, and she had a great topic here with you. So it was perfect. Oh, thank y'all. So Pam Ditto. You are such a character and I love it. You know, I've been following you and you were so good about responding right away and helping me make this happen. So let me just say right off the bat, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So tell us how you got to be who you are today. Give us sort of a summary of how you got here. It's a question I get asked a lot and it's a question I explore a lot because if I can take what made me think the way I do and find a way to distill it and share it, especially with white women. I could really do something. How did I become who I am? I think being adopted had part to do with it. Because growing up, I grew up, as you know, in a fairly elitist, white, wasp, insulated world. And it always felt ridiculous to me. And it always felt unfair. I would lay in bed at night as a kid and think, why did I get to get born here? But somebody else has to suffer because they were born there. Why? And even as a little kid. So, you know, I grew up in Austin in the 70s and it was a fun time and Dazed and Confused is fairly accurate. Okay, <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you that. And then I moved to a small town, which I won't name because people will track me down when I went to high school. And when we moved to that town, they did a four page newspaper spread on us moving to town because my dad bought a car dealership there. I don't know if that set it up, but I was bullied endlessly the entire time I lived there. That changed a lot for me. I started to make friends with people that look different, that are different, because that's what I had. And I found out I really liked these people. The people that I had grown up with, I never really liked, so I was a bit of a loner. And then all of a sudden, I had a friend group of people that thought different like I did. And I moved into Austin and the punk movement in the early 80s. And that very quickly became social justice. And I've been doing that ever since, like 1982. That's a wonderful started, Founded a pro-choice group in Waco, Texas in 1987. 
which is where when I'll do videos about being doxxed and the person rocking on my door and screaming in my face and picketing outside my house. That was because of that. Wow. So I've seen it a lot. Yeah. It's just, I look at the world different. And me and my son talk about this all the time. Me and all my kids talk about this. Why do we see the world differently? Why did we not grow up and see just this flat level what's right in front of our face why do we and i don't know i wish i knew because if i could distill that down i could really affect some change especially with white women if i could get them to see there's been a million stories through my lifetime i always got a story you know that yeah (laughs) well that's a great summary thank you so much okay so you're a white woman with a full and busy life again Mm -hmm. i'm going to just ask you what refined your activism you know, I get that it, you know, it started here, it sort of started to move in another direction. How did you end up here? All through the punk movement, did all of that, ended up pregnant at college, you know, standard story, left college, had kids, kind of got away from activism, was busy because I walked away from my family's inheritance and all of that crap because they just don't approve of me. Frankly, they don't like me. That's not fair. You know how family is. It's complicated. Yeah. We love each other. We don't like each other a whole lot. <laughs> I and so struggling just to make ends meet and get by and turned around. And my youngest was in high school. And I was like, what have you been doing? And so I started to get out here and do work with the homeless. There's an organization here called PATH, People Attempting to Help. Very loosely got involved with that. Then started finding out mutual aid. Then started registering people to vote. You know, doing it on my own via Craigslist early on. You know, just putting out, hey, I'll help you get your birth certificate. I'll help you get registered to vote. You know, what do you need? And it just kind of took off from there. My views on it and the reason I don't like performative activists is fairly obvious. They do more harm than good. Yeah, I see. I mean, if you get involved in voter registration, voter suppression is enough to to push you in the direction of social justice Mm -hmm. even stronger, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I worked on Ann Richards' campaign and I've always been active in the Democratic Party and in those things. And that has actually, as my social activism has matured mm-hmm. since, you know, my daughter left high school, politics has become a kind of a back seat because it doesn't touch it does and it doesn't. I want to go out and help people. I go down to the camp for the people that are houseless that is down by my house. And I sit down and I talk with them. I hang out. What do y'all need? I think you need this stuff, but I don't know. What do y'all need? And they'll tell me, yeah. well, this guy needs a tent. That guy needs a coat. Whatever it is, and we'll get it for him. Yeah, you're very, very grassroots. And I think that's what's stayed true throughout, it sounds like, your journey is this grassroots. It is. And I think that comes from watching. My family was always really big in politics. My grandfather was friends with LBJ. You know, my dad was friends with John Connolly, who was the governor that was shot in the car with Kennedy. Yeah. So there was always this elitist, top level Democrat, Mm. which now has become very conservative with my family. And it didn't feel any different. And it's like, where is the reality? Where's the texture? Where is the color? Where is the humanity in this? Where is, let's get it off the page and let's get it into the real world. Excellent. I love it. Are you good with talking to us about your adoption? Yeah. 
Okay. Give us an idea about your feelings related to being adopted and adoption. Multi-level. My parents, which as you've heard me tell stories, me and my mom do not see eye to eye on much of anything. But for their time frame, they did everything right. They were always open about it. It was never a taboo subject. But there is an inherent trauma that comes with it. When you're sitting there talking to your mom and she goes, oh, my God, you look just like your grandma. Oh, I forgot. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, you're the outsider again. Or even when she says you look just like your grandmother and in your head, you're going, I can't. It doesn't make sense. So there is trauma that needs to be healed. And they're much better about doing that now. My frustration is that the adoption home I was, the maternity home, let's be honest, that I was adopted through, does everybody else in Texas had to go to open records. You request your open birth records, you can get them, except for this one maternity home. They will do it for you for a finder's fee. Well, my parents had donated thousands and thousands of dollars through the years. And I was pretty angry about that. It feels like blood money to me. But very early in the internet, they had the registries that you could go. And there was a million of them at one point, you know. And I went and did all that. I made contact with a lady from uh, San Diego who had had a little girl on that day at that hospital at that maternity home. And I was like, well, you've got to be my birth mother. What are the odds? And she goes, the one thing the adoption home would do is if both parties contacted them, they would tell you if you were a match. And they said, no, you're not a match. And I asked her, I said, how could that be? She said, you don't understand. They would take every girl that was due within six weeks to the hospital at one time and induce them all so they didn't have to be driving back and forth to the hospital. Oh my goodness. So yeah. Wow. So the one thing we know is that I'm Irish. We've done the DNA, or my kids have. I'm waiting on my results now. But we know what their dad's is, and we know what theirs is, and we can kind of discern that we know that much. But I don't have any, there's no DNA hits on the kids. So there is a small chance that I could be one of the Irish stolen babies. Very small. That is so overwhelming. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, it's a mixed bag. And my daughter just redid all the family photos because my mom had, you know, the 12 photo albums. Yeah. She made one small one for my mom. And the one thing I'll tell you is she adores me. You can still look at the pictures that are taken in adulthood and how she interacts. She adores me. She doesn't understand me. She has yeah. no concept of how I think. And when I had my son was the first time I could look at somebody and go, you process the world the same way I do, or at least similarly. Mm-hmm. And that, that is, was special. Yeah, that's so powerful. That's extremely powerful. And I, I know from working with kids who have been adopted that it's a particular journey for sure. You give voice to something very specific that happened during a particular time and era. Yeah. That's even deeper in the struggle. So talk to us about your feelings related to interracial adoption. I don't think it is inherently evil. I think it is so incredibly difficult and almost insurmountable to do with the proper care for the child. Mm. Raising my son, and he's half Asian, we think. We don't know. 
And that's mm-hmm. a whole nother story we can get into. And I raised him in a white world, largely. Yeah. Right. And with white family. And at this point, his dad was also adopted. His dad was adopted by a Mormon family. His dad is very not white. I mean, you couldn't make that mistake. And they changed his birth certificate to Anglo. And they paraded him around. And the things I didn't take into account were how broken he was. Mm. You know, what a broken human being he was. So when he abandoned Raw, Roth didn't want anything. That's my son's name is Roth. He didn't want anything to do with him. And so he now doesn't feel like he can reach out towards this heritage that is unknown to him, that he feels doesn't belong to him and isn't his right. That makes so much sense. You know, I have a similar experience with kids who are biracial and bicultural. Mm -hmm. You know, they're often leaning towards one culture more than the other. And there's this part of themselves that gets lost. And it's great that you have the awareness. It's just hard to correct, isn't it? It is. And I've talked to him. I said, I'll pay for you, Dina. He said, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. Quit asking me about it. Mm -hmm. You're 30 years old. I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. It's got to be his journey. It's got to be his journey. But it, in hindsight, and people are like, you can't beat yourself up. It's not beating myself up. It's looking at other women especially women that are seeking to have biracial children. It's like pay attention to the journey Mm -hmm. that you are setting this baby in a basket like Moses into the river and shoving it off into the world. Consider that you don't know everything. You know, and I come from all angles on this and totally agree with you about the requirement for knowledge uh, going into adopting children. On one hand, you know, there is an excess amount of black children in the foster care system who need a home and need adopting. And on the other hand, is it equally dangerous to bring them into white spaces and not celebrate or nurture who they are? I think it is. And I think it's something I have considered doing, especially now, because I have the wherewithal, I have the room, I have the space of fostering older children teenage children specifically i like teenagers i'm weird i adore i like them too (laughs) i love all their crazy ideas and and all of it but i think you have to be i don't think it can be done by somebody that's young unless they're an exceptional human being and most people that want to be parents through adoption are younger yeah i think at my age i could do it. I have the circle of friends. I have a community now that I didn't have when I was in my twenties. That's, that makes so much sense. And so clear and so honest. I appreciate that. No problem. Uh, So talk to us about white women. (laughs) (laughs) My nemesis. (laughs) nemesis. (laughs) People, I just got Somebody came on something I posted the other day. You just hate yourself. You just hate white people. No, I want white people not to exist. Be Irish, be German, be French, be Italian, be whatever you are. But white is a construct that was used to keep people down. But white women. I grew up with girls. I can remember in high school getting ready to go to a bonfire party because I grew up in the inner rural area. Sure. And I remember very specifically the girls going, if I get too drunk and this happens, I'm going to say this. I'm going to blame this person. 
and mm-hmm. and this whole little thing of blaming somebody that was lower down the social structure than they were by their view that they could blame everything they planned it and i see the same thing with white women the first neighborhood we ever bought a house in one night all the women were like we're gonna go out to the club in dallas and i was like okay and i went and i didn't drink that much because i didn't go clubbing that much anymore Mm-hmm. This was before I was a stripper, actually. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> but um, if you are full of surprises. They they all got went out and got hammered and picked up men and took the end and they're like, "Don't tell our husbands." And I'm like, "Well, hopefully you'll never ask because I'm not going to lie." <laughs> but what are y'all doing? It, it's this this mentality of competing with each other you know one sells Tupperware one sells jewelry one sells but they're all it's always a competition and it's always showing off for each other and yet they don't like each other mm-hmm. so why are they standing on other people to elevate themselves and it, it's very frustrating now because activism has become the new thing right and they all want to put BLM in their profile and they yes. all want to say they're doing all the things, but yet they mm-hmm. can't treat anybody like a human being, you know, anybody mm-hmm. that wants anything different than them, they don't understand. And I think it comes from, again, that culture I grew up in. I use my mom as an example. My mom would have much rather been a dancer and studied music, but she was a piano player and got her degree in elementary education because that was expected. And if you do what's expected, life will turn out okay. If you do the next step, like, but it doesn't turn out okay. Then she couldn't have another kid. And then my dad died. And then my dad wasn't born. My dad was an alcoholic and my dad died. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden life happens and they can't cope because I've done all the right things. How is this happening to me? Why is this happening to me? Why are you out of this thing I want at the store? Whatever it is. And they go off on people. So that leads us into feminism and the feminist. Mm -hmm. Talk about that a little bit. The feminist movement is so stereotypically white. Toxic? (laughs) (laughs) You said it, I didn't. And so talk talk about that. Give us some of your, your bylines about that. When you grow up in a world that looks and wants a certain goal, they all look the same way. They all are working towards the same goal. Whatever that is, if it's a church group and they're looking for this salvation, if it's a, you know, a waspy world and they're all looking for financial success, whatever it is, you don't value people who don't have the same goals. People that aren't going to the same place you're going to. So white women want to be white men. Mm. Wait, I'm gonna, wait, wait, Pam, wait, wait. I'm going to need you to say that again. Say white that again. women want to be white men because wow. that's the only definition of success that they understand. They've that's never true. taken the time to create their own definition of success, success. Wow, that is deep. Okay, so then... I'm going to ask you about your view on patriarchy and why you think it is the backbone of white supremacy. You've already led us in that direction. So just finish that off. Because when everybody's been looking to white men 
as the definition of success, the path to success, what equates to what we should all be striving for, then they are inherently in charge and it starts everything. And white women then utilize that to move their, use their proximity to white men and their emulation of white men and their manipulation of white men to move their hands for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it becomes this symbiotic. Yes. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I love how you put that together. It's what I say all the time when I teach. It just doesn't go over well. And <laughs> white and, women don't like to hear it. <laughs> I don't care. I know. Clearly you don't. Clearly you don't. What do you want white people to know? That it's okay to be different. It's okay to view the world different. Step outside of your world. And the biggest one in my mantra lately is representation inclusion matter so much more to white people than we realize. Because you don't know to appreciate something you don't understand or that you don't see. And the minute, how many times have you known somebody that is like, well, I don't think we should mistreat gay people, but you know, it doesn't affect me. And then their sibling or their cousin comes out and all of a sudden they're like, or they make a friend at work and then they find out they're gay. And then they're like, I didn't realize, right. I didn't realize. And it's like, get out of your bubble. And let go of whiteness as an identity. Can we please just do that? Whiteness is not your identity. It is a racial classification in the United States that was done in order to grab a majority power position. That's why they keep changing the definition of it, including other groups, because they keep losing ground. Whiteness is not your identity. No, and, you know, what's interesting about that to me is everything. But in addition to that, the idea that the white culture has denied having a culture for so long, right? Yeah. You know, whiteness is not a culture. Actually, it is a culture. It and, is. And so when whiteness works as a culture or as a title, it works for you. But mm-hmm. when it doesn't in terms of owning your privilege and dealing with it, deconstructing and sitting in the discomfort, then it's not a culture. Right. So it's one of those things that's user-friendly based on what the white culture determines it to be. And thank you for putting that because I've said white doesn't have a culture a couple of times in videos and just in general. And every time I stick on it because I'm like, that's not really true. Right. And I can't, you put it so well because it is. Right. It is. It's just not an identity. There you go. I think that is an important distinction to make. I think that's important. So I'm going to shift gears and then I'm going to come back. What was the greatest lesson or what is your greatest lesson learned about parenting? Be prepared for anything. I always promised my kids I would never lie to them. I will tell you I don't want to answer your question or I'm not going to answer your question, but I won't lie to you. And that actually held true until my addiction kicked in, by the way, or you're sober now. Five years. Wow. Congratulations. Thanks. (laughs) Thank you. But my son one time when he was about 13 and it was always my son. Okay. I'll tell you right now. He was always the one. (laughs) Looked at me and said, Hey mom, have you ever done drugs? And I was like, yeah. He goes, which ones have you done? And I was like, Oh, I was expecting this, but not quite yet. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, here's the one, these, and he goes, were they fun? 
And you're like, well, I wasn't expecting that one. And you just answer, honestly, the, no, the biggest thing with parenting is being able to admit you're wrong. And this is what I've told my daughter who just had her child. I told my son when he had his children, you have to be vulnerable enough and emotionally available enough for your children to be wrong. So how do you talk about the mistakes you've made without them wanting to experience it themselves? How do you think that works? How that works for you? Well, that particular question, what I answered is at the time, they seemed like a lot, whole lot of fun, but I'll tell you in hindsight, they were not. And they did way more damage than okay. anything positive they brought to my life. But uh, luckily, I have built a good enough relationship and a trusting enough relationship. Big example, don't smoke. That was a big one with my kids. Do not smoke. Of all the things I've done, and I was still smoking at the time, and I still do occasionally. And I was like, do as I say, not as I do. I don't do that to you often. But in this one, do as I say, not as I do. It is so bad. And they trust me enough because we have built that trust. They're like, mom doesn't tell us. And to be open. I mean, you can be open and say, yeah, don't. But they're still going to do it anyway. My son had his first child at 17, you know. Wow. Okay. Yeah. You know, and so when they do make the mistakes, they just got to stay there. You don't get to run away. That's great. Wow. How's he doing? He's doing good. That's great. Yeah. His son's going to graduate this year, his youngest. So. Oh, my goodness. Just weird to me. I got one in college and a grandson graduating. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. I wasn't the most receptive as a grandma at 42, 40. Okay. I was not. And it wasn't angry at anybody. I just don't call me grandma. That makes sense though. You were young. Yeah. Do not call me grandma. We'll come up with another name. Mimi is what it ended up being. That makes sense. I mean, because you had to change your identity again. Mm-hmm. So that totally makes sense to me. Yeah. And he called me the other night and he just gushed. He's like, I'm so proud of you. <laughs> so proud of you. I'm like, what? He goes, where you were five years ago? And he said, and you didn't check yourself in anywhere. You just went, that's not who I want to be. And you changed everything. Had they been talking to you about it over the course of the years? Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't a real long lived. Well, it festered. It's an opiate addiction and it festered for about four years, but was very manageable, very functional. Mm -hmm. It only got derailing for about two or three and my son and his girlfriend happened to live here during that time and it was bad it was really bad we've talked about it he's like did you know how bad you were lying i was like i knew i didn't intend to in my head i was saying tell them the truth when they asked tell them the truth but the words that came out were absolute lies wow what was the final straw for you and then i'll get back on track because i just um Laying in bed, realizing it sounds really innocuous. I had told my daughter I had mailed something that she had wanted me to ship her and I had not. And I had had excuses for like a week why I had not, because of course I hadn't left the house. Right. And she finally kind of snapped at me and I sat there in our car and I was like, all you do is lie to everybody. You somebody that just absolutely did not lie about things. You would 
refused to answer, but you didn't lie to people, especially people you love. That's all you do. And at some point, I just didn't want to be that person anymore. You know, Pam, I knew you were interesting, but I didn't know just how interesting you were. <laughs> I mean, you got me going in all different directions because I want to know so much more. So we're going to have to do this again. All right. We'll do it so, again. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I'm going to go back to TikTok and which you're recently. Okay. Known. Okay. So one of the challenges watching white activists rise is that their voice echoes and other white people get to have this vicarious experience by checking in, seeing what you're saying, co-sign, blowing you up. And then, you know, African-Americans, people of the uh, global majority, like myself, have grown up doing this our entire lives. And we watch you blow up and we watch other people from marginalized communities look at, you know, your white existence and say, you know, we're so grateful that this issue is being heard. And at the same time, we struggle with the fact that, well, damn, I've been doing this for my whole life and can't get that type of attention. How do you yep. manage that? I mean, because we know white people listen to white people. This is problematic. How do you speak to this? What do you think about Ooh, that? I hate the fact that I can say the exact same thing that you can say. And there's a dual layer with me because I'm a middle-aged or a grandma-aged white woman. So there's the shock value of the things coming exactly. out of a face that looks like mine. So there's that, first of all. But I hate when I say something and people are like, oh, my God, yes. And it's like, none of this is original. Guys, I learned this back in 1982. I learned this from then till now. This from people who look like you, from my gay friends, from my trans friends, from my Hispanic friends. For me, that was a big one. It's not original. And what really really makes me uncomfortable is when I get black indigenous and other people are going, yes, queen, you're invited to yes. the cookout. No, yes. thank you. That's very sweet. I appreciate the sentiment. I'm not coming to the cookout. That's not Good my space. That's for not for me. And that gets very uncomfortable. And I want to go on every comment and just gush. Thank you so much, but no, thank you yeah. so much, but no, I get, what another thing that really gets under my skin is people echoing me and most people would say that's a big form of flattery people who repeat your message i have a certain way of saying what i say because it's me and that's how i am and that's how i speak but when i hear other people it's very use your own words learn the lesson don't repeat the words yes yes because so, you can repeat the words, but not live the lifestyle. Yes. And so if you don't take it in, absorb it, process it, sit in it, and make it part of who you are, you're just going to be parroting. And it's very uncomfortable when, especially white women, will come along and start saying what I say almost verbatim. And it's like, that's not it. I don't care if you repeat what I say. It wasn't original to me. Please <laughs> yeah. don't repeat the message. But when you say it exactly like I do, it feels very performative. Yeah. And when you repeat from the global majority, it feels like appropriation. Yes. So you have to come up with your own version of what you learned to prove to yourself. Yes. And yes. to be authentic about what you learned. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the, 
white women tend to appropriate because in general, they have trapped themselves in such a one-dimensional bland world. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like I said, they want to be white men. That's all they know to aspire to. They don't want to be white men. They aspire to be white men, but that's not what they want to be. They have given up what they want, who they are for this path along success, this defined road and their ability to vary from that goes away. So when they see people who are inherently strong, who have held onto their core selves and who have thrived and have vibrancy they appropriate because mm-hmm. they're like they're so happy yeah. i'm so empty i'm gonna put on that hairstyle it's a lot more complicated than that no, and- i think i think you did an excellent job of creating a visual that is user-friendly and i think that's what's important is for people to be able to say to check in with themselves and say okay i do do that Okay, yeah. I do this, right? And I've done it. And the one thing I'm going to start doing on my TikToks, and this is going to surprise people, is talking about my mistakes. I think that's Not good. just talking about message, but we're going to talk about my mistakes. You know, I called my son a racial slur one time. Okay. Because he was repeating a racial slur, mm-hmm. angry at a gaming system that wouldn't do what he wanted. He was about eight or nine, and I called him a racial slur, mm-hmm. trying to shock him and to stop using racial slur. Now, why in my stupid head i thought that was the way to shock him and it's something that i still beat myself up over and he's like mom it's okay and i'm like yeah no it's not okay it's never okay you know one of the things that i mean you've already answered the next question which is you know how do you avoid the white savior syndrome and i think everything you have said speaks to that you know i think that acknowledging and talking about your mistakes and being vulnerable, which is one of the things that you do so well, is vulnerability. You don't come at it from a hierarchical place when you're talking to people. Now you shut people down. You definitely <laughs> shut them down. Push me hard enough, you'll get it. Yeah. <laughs> you definitely shut them down. But I never feel like you are coming from a place of I got it and you need to get it. And I no. think that's the way that you avoid white saviorism. Would you agree with that? I would absolutely agree with that. I think between that and an overinflated self-image absolutely leads to this white saviorism. And and I've got things just, I got it. I got it. Right. Right. You know, it's just soccer mom syndrome times a million. Yeah. And I think the other thing you just added another layer for me, which is when I'll talk about my own culture in particular, when black people are so relieved that white people start saying things, we have this way of being so, grateful. Thank you so much. You know, appreciate you for saying that. And and I feel sad that we feel that way because we don't need to take it anybody. It's not our construct to deconstruct. And so we need to be sitting there and saying, yeah, about time instead of being so grateful. That's the message that I feel is challenging on why, why the saviorism gets, you know, embraced so much. It's like, well, if people from the global majority feel this way, then I have to be doing something right. And I have to feel good about what I'm doing, but that's how you lose sight. Right. Would you agree with that? I absolutely agree with that. And especially, you know, in real life, things are very different. And my real life activism is very different than my TikTok activism. I tend to be pretty quiet. Actually. I ask questions but I tend to be a fairly quiet person because I'm learning. These people that I interact with are so interesting to me. And so I just want to absorb their knowledge. 
but online that serotonin burst when somebody tells you how great you are Mm -hmm. and that's exactly how these platforms are built they feed on that you give them content for them to make money on and people tell you you're great and you get this cycle and then you know like I have not posted much in the past two days and I'm sure when I finally do post again it won't go very far because that's the way that one works I don't care anymore. I don't look at analytics, any of that, because that serotonin thing, it's very easy for me to fall into. Well, it's like, yeah, I'm pretty, pretty good. good. I am. Pretty yeah, good. for sure. I've I mean, got three people that will check me every time. They'll be like, yeah. mom, what the hell are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, you're talking about an addictive yes. response, right? Yes. So, I mean, what you're talking about is very real. Yeah, um, this, it's not just ego; it's also an addictive response. Yes, yeah. And, and so, if you have somebody that has an ego that starts to fall into it, it becomes just a monster. And absolutely. then you find people that cannot say, "Holy shit, yeah, I did screw up. I'm sorry." Mm-hmm. No explanation. I don't need to tell you what I meant, what I was trying to do. I'm sorry. Yes, God. If I hear one more what I intended. I'm going to lose my mind. I just, I start class with saying, don't tell me about intention. It has no place in the real world. Raising my kids. I used to tell them, I don't care what you intended. (laughs) You knocked the crap out of your sister with the end of the broom. I don't care if you meant to or not. That's what happened. (laughs) That's great. Well, fam, you are lovely, smart, interesting, fun, a good time. Great. Yeah, you you really just are so much more than I even knew and appreciated. And it's clear you're already trying to change the narrative, but I want people to know where they can find you and I want them to know what's next for you. All right. Right now, I'm on Pam. I am 1313 on TikTok. Everything else is Pazam 2000. Instagram, YouTube, which I have done nothing with, which I need to because a longer format would really suit me better. And I'm on, I think that's it. That it. Are you on Twitter and Twitch? I'm on, I, Twitter may be the bane to my existence because I have <laughs> never learned how to use it. It drives me crazy. I get on there and I try it and I'm like, I'm so lost. <laughs> so is this person and I'm now two years back on their tweets and I don't, how did I get here? You sound like Susie. <laughs> <laughs> Twitter, well, I, mean, I don't know. And I've tried Tweetcaster. I've tried apps. That, no. Yeah. But yeah. Instagram, YouTube is fixing to be where I go. I want to start a longer format. To be honest, the tank on the little one minute, three minute quips is getting low. I want more like this. This is fun to me. Discussions with intelligent, open minded people are what I live for. So you do it well, you do it well, but I do want to see, I don't always want to go on TikTok to see you. So I need you to have more on Instagram. Okay. You can get down that TikTok rabbit hole and forget why you went on there. And it's it's just right now there's so much infighting. It's sad. And people doing real world damage to people. I don't understand that. Well, I mean, I just, from a mental health format, you know, and we, of course, Susie and I are therapists. So we're all about the mental health, which is something we didn't even get into with you because we've been so many places in this (laughs) period of time. So we'll have to get into that the next time we have you back. But 
you know, this idea that? that you have people on TikTok giving mental health advice is blowing my mind. It should be illegal. Like, you know, what I agree. Are you doing social media. That's just crazy. When I first got on an ADHD, TikTok had taken off and I'm severely ADHD. Yeah. And it was ADHD looks like this in adults and like this. And it's like, yeah. it looks like everything. Y'all stop. Y'all stop. <laughs> stop. Everybody looks different. Exactly. What are y'all doing? You know, and kids just uh. and it's like, mm. <laughs> you don't have to medicate. Well, some people want to, and that makes sense. <laughs> Why are y'all doing this? Well, Pam, you're so great. You are great, really. Uh, Thank you so much for your time and being so flexible and willing to do this. Keep my number. Let's stay in touch. Let's do it. Okay. And we'll do this again for sure. And keep an eye on Instagram because I'm going to start working on that. I'll do that. Right on. All right. I look forward to the weekend. Bye bye. JD and I want to thank our fabulous producers at I Am Music Group. And for all of you out there who want to do your own podcast, go to IamMusicGroup.com and the team will hit you back. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also, leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to 